Welcome back to the Coming Clean podcast. Today's bonus episode is from our New Hampshire Candidate Series, where ACC Action, along with New Hampshire Young Republicans and New Hampshire College Republicans, hosted New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who endorsed Ambassador Nikki Haley for a town hall on the economy, environment, and education. Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Thank you, Virginia. Uh, Governor, let's talk about a topic, uh, the environment, which is... Oh, I thought we were going to go to the Patriots. Gerard Gerard Mayo, the new coach of the Patriots, we're all very excited. Right, right. Okay. It's a notoriously easy topic for for Republicans to talk about, right? Um, And and I want to go back to the first GOP debate uh, in Milwaukee in August, uh, because one of our members actually had the opportunity to ask the only audience question... Which was a question about climate change, mm-hmm. um, and and what really stood out obviously was that Ambassador Haley was the only candidate on stage that said climate change is real, but here's how we do it in a conservative way, and and I find that really interesting yeah. because what you were talking about just before this in the section about the economy is that energy really is the lifeblood of an economy. Mm-hmm. You can't have a, a climate agenda that just destroys the economy because then you're trading one thing for the other, and it clearly doesn't work. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Ambassador Haley looks at the the environmental and, and this climate issue from a conservative perspective sure. that grows the economy while tackling the problem? Yeah, that's it. I mean, and again, you know, the fact that this climate stuff has gotten so political, it, you know, as a Republican and a conservative and an environmental engineer, I, I um, again, I, I think she and I have have the same approach. First, let's look at data, right? Let's look at numbers. Um, let's take the emotion out of it as as much as we can. Um, the hysteria. I think there's a lot of hysteria out there. doesn't mean we can't be concerned and make smart moves and all of that. But when there is a, a climate change agenda out there that starts with hysteria, the world is going to end in 12 years and all that kind of stuff. That isn't like, that's coming from leaders of the world that are promoting this kind of stuff. So two things, either you're, you're massively fear-mongering or what happens is people go, well, now I just can't believe you because you know, there has to be a, a smarter approach. So the approach is this. Again, you have to have your energy dominance and you have to transition. You have to look at what works. The, the, example, the quick example I'll give is, you know, should, should New Hampshire, she, she likes the state's approach, which, which I appreciate a lot. Should New Hampshire have the same solar standards as Arizona? Um, no, obviously, right? That seems kind of obvious. But you have people out there saying, no, Arizona has standards that say, uh, renewable portfolio standards that say we're going to have this much of solar, so we should as well. No, it's snowing and it's cloudy a lot of the time, and it's a whole different thing. Do we have opportunities in hydro that places like Arizona might not have? Yes, we do, right? Especially micro hydro or macro hydro out of Canada, right? Okay, so let's be smart. I'm a huge believer in hydro because that has been proven to be so economically viable. Uh, we can tap into it. It's some of the cheapest energy on the planet. Is just north of our border in Canada, right? So let's bring that down um, and and utilize it. Geothermal. We tried geothermal. I, I worked on personally a lot of geothermal projects myself. Still fairly expensive. Works in some isolated areas. Okay, so let's make that available. Let's not mandate it on everybody, right? Let's not force. I mean, the other thing I see is, you know, this whole when you go to the electric, electrification piece, specifically on the economics. Well, we all, we're, yeah, we're going to electrify, you know, as we, we're going to keep electrifying and electrifying. There are certain things that we're never going to 100% electrify. All that electricity has to come from somewhere. 
and you can't electrify this country if you're not willing to build a transmission line because you have to get the electrons from A to B and you're not willing to build a power plant because you have to create the electrons, right? So everyone is looking at how many charging stations can you put in? Okay, but I can't, you're not letting me build more transmission lines to plug those cars in. And California is the ultimate example, right? Of going super hard, super fast because a policy sounded politically good, but they had no infrastructure to develop it, right? So, hey, we want everyone, everyone has to buy an electric vehicle, but by the way, don't charge your electric vehicles between the hours of 10 and 3 or whatever, whatever it was that they came out with. It's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. And it's just data. So we're going to get there. We're going to transition. But you have to have all the infrastructure pieces in place to make it economically viable or the whole thing starts to really fall apart. I don't know if that answered the heart of your question, but um, making sure that when you're talking about electrifying, when you're talking about batteries, when you're talking about being, you know, generating power in, in, a, in a more environmentally friendly way, First, avoid the extremism because that just turns people off and it's not based in reality. I'm a big believer that the, the, the fix to climate change, if you will, to click the fix to any environmental issue, is you go harder on, on better technologies. Right? When, we, when we had a pollution problem in America um, in the 50s and 60s and automobiles were polluting and you know, LA was smog city, you know, it was, you know, smog every day of the year, whatever it was, they didn't ban cars. That would have been stupid. You know what they did? They put money and they invented the catalytic converter, right? They invented better technologies in the vehicles to get better, cleaner air. Um, when, when power plants were putting out, you know, all this smoke and, and, and smog and all that kind of stuff out of the power plant stacks, they said, well, we're not going to stop creating electricity. We're going to put, we invented better scrubbers and better technologies to go on that. And those are some short-term costs to be sure, but allows you the, the whole system to keep going. When you have this new process of, well, power plants are, coal power plants are bad, so just shut, shut them all down. That's where you, you get into real crises. And again, who does it hurt the most? Low-income families, right? Inner-city families, right? That just, that sometimes don't have all these other economic opportunities that, that other folks have. And so these, I'll just say these left-wing progressive policies are crushed because things get so expensive, they literally can't afford to heat their homes or put gas in their cars um, uh, or, you know, a, put food on the table because ultimately that food costs so much just to, to ship it across the country. So that those types of policies drive inflation, crush lower and middle income in families economically, and then it's so much harder to keep making those arguments, right? Because no one's buying them. Yeah, and it seems to me like like what you said, the debate's been stuck between extremes, right? Like on the one hand, you, you do have hysteria um, and that really delegitimizes the debate because when you have People like Al Gore making extreme predictions 20 years ago that should have happened by now, and they happen. They yeah, according happened. to Al Gore, we're all dead. Right, yeah. I mean, literally. Like, he thought we were, we were done for. Right. Well, the so, world was, world was going to get so overpopulated, we weren't going to be sustainable, you know, by the year of 2010. Right, and so that's, that's one extreme it. of the climate debate, and I think people are starting to see more and more through that. But I think we also have another extreme to the climate debate, which is that there is no problem. Right. That this is all just a hoax. Um, and I think when a lot of young people, and obviously this is an event catered to young people on the right, uh, it, young people look at that, including young conservatives, and, and they're not convinced. They're not oh, not at all. No, I think young people completely get climate change is real. It's something we have to tackle. And I've been arguing to my con more conservative older friend that, again, whether it's, it's a hoax, whether they say it's a hoax or it's just not real, don't worry about it, it's all fine. No, no way, man. We are losing the vote of younger Americans primarily over the environment. Like that's the number one issue. Number two is the abortion issue. 
but even that is getting to be not as much of an issue because it's more state-driven now. But nationally, we're getting crushed and losing folks in droves because we're not addressing this in the right way. And the other thing is that the way you approach climate and environmental issues to the next generation has become a bit of heuristic. It's like, do you trust basic science, basic facts? Like, do you care about our future? So if you tell a young person, look, it's all a hoax, then their instinct is like, well, why would I believe you on all these other issues? Exactly. No, no, that's that's right. But something you said as well, which I found really fascinating is, okay, like we can, we say this is real. We need to do something about it, acknowledge the problem. But then how do we go from there? Mm. And I think that's an opportunity for conservatives and Republicans to step into that and talk about what you were just talking about, that it's not uh, about regulating, it's about innovating. Right. Um, and that the best way that we can do this is by allowing ourselves to build things. That's right. To empower entrepreneurs, um, to, to reshore supply chains back to the United States rather than relying yep. on adversaries like China. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Ambassador Haley looks at those issues? Yeah. We can unleash so, the American clean energy. Sure. So I'm going to, first, I'm going to have to, first, I'm going to pick on somebody because that's the way I always start. I'm just, that was a joke. Um, Let's look at what Obama did, right? So Obama came out and said, hey, we want more solar power. And he put hundreds of millions of dollars, even, you know, Solera, I think was the big example, $500 million of your money behind Solera, bankrupt in two years. Because he wasn't investing in better technologies. That's where the government should be creating opportunity. We're going to invest in the research and development. We're going to incentivize, whether it's the universities or private industry, to do the R&D part to be more efficient, cheaper, better technologies so that the private sector can go buy the solar panels from Solera or the states can provide subsidies at their own, you know, uh, manageable levels, you know, to, to help buy those solar panels. When you just start pounding hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars into companies because it sounds good, again, the, uh, the research and development, I think, is where the country and where Nikki has, has, I think, understanding that the value of your dollar can go the furthest. Another example is wind. I love the idea of, uh, uh, the idea of offshore wind. Because we have some of the strongest winds in the country just off the shore in the Gulf of Maine. We call it the Gulf of Maine because we got to name something after Maine, right? Give them, we give them lobsters and wind. But right off there are some of the most, you know, highest potential for offshore wind. So I started pushing and, and conservatives said, well, what are you doing? Are you I said, we're not building anything yet. Let's start the, the studies. Let's look at the technologies. Let's do the research. Let's know the data. Let's understand what we're dealing with. How much will this cost? All the different pieces that have to come into play before we say, oh, here's a, here's a billion dollars, we're just going to go do it. So what it, we found is, you know, it's, it might be viable someday, but the, the costs haven't come down like we anticipated because after the inflation issues, everything's more expensive. To the point where even the companies that were doing the projects, the developers, Eversource is now, for example, that's our local energy company, has said, yeah, we're out of this game. The costs are just way too high. It doesn't make economic sense. Maybe down the road. Now, we're not saying yes or no whether we're going to do it. We're still in our study and engineering phase, and we're going to keep doing that. But that doesn't mean when we get to the end, we just hit a switch and we're going to do it. At least we'll know what we're doing, how we're doing it, where the data is. Um, Rhode Island has their offshore wind project coming on board. It's incredibly expensive. I mean, what those taxpayers and the ratepayers now have to pay for the next 20 years in energy um, for that offshore wind is really, really expensive. Um, you have the issue of natural gas, right? New England's at the end of the line, right? We rely a lot on nat natural gas. Almost, almost every bit of natural gas comes through New York, right? It comes up through a giant pipeline through Albany, New York. Um, Albany, New York, in case you haven't heard, is now like trying to ban gas stoves and ban gas everything. Scares the heck out of everybody in New England because if they started turning that valve down, we're screwed. I mean, really, we don't know have another place to get 
would have to, in fact, it got so expensive last year to bring it in out of the Marcellus Shale, it was cheaper to buy natural gas from Europe, right? Which is astounding because they were having trouble buying it from Russia, right? Because of the war. But it was really cheaper for us to have to bring in natural gas from Europe. So the whole point is um, we're all interdependent on each other. I think the government can be helpful there in trying to, whether it's new pipelines or whatever it needs to be while we make these transitions. Um, you know, our overall dependence on baseload generation, whether it's a power plant or whatever it might be that uses natural gas, Seabrook, any of these, uh, I'm going to get a little wonky here. On the hottest summer day right now, New England, because we're all tied together in New England, will use about 23,000 kilowatts. Um, that used to be closer to 30,000, right? So our overall need on baseload generation has come down because we're getting smarter. We're electrifying more. We're, we're not putting a, a, such demands on the system. We're finding other ways, whether it's solar or renewables or all this. So we're doing a good job getting there, but you can't just shut the system off, right? Because the costs go through the roof and you have brownouts, you have blackouts, people can't, literally can't heat their homes and all of that sort of thing. So you got to keep investing on that infrastructure while we make the transition, not over the next five years, but over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And, and, and again, the federal government's opportunity there is investing in the R&D to figure out what is best. What materials should you use in that, in that offshore wind? Um, what, you know, are there better, more efficient materials to use in solar power? Can you, is there a way to do solar power so we're not having to shovel off the, the solar cells? Uh, in New Hampshire, right? And, you know, these guys have actually created, I saw this one thing, they created solar panels that actually move and clean themselves, which actually can increase the efficiency of a solar panel, you know, huge, uh, especially in, even in the desert, because I guess they get caught in uh, sandstorms and all that kind of stuff. They need to be constantly cleaned. So there's all these little things to make the renewables that we're bringing online much more efficient. Um, but to, to challenge solar power with, you know, natural gas, natural gas is effectively 98% efficient when it's running through a a power plant. Solar, 12 and 13% efficiency, right? So you get so much a bigger bang for your buck with natural gas. You can't just, just completely shut that off. But we're doing well. The data says we're going, we're trending in the right direction. So let's have the federal government help us invest in that infrastructure. And, you know, the, I got to go back to the power line thing, guys. It takes like 15 years to get a power line permitted in this country right now, primarily because of the EPA. That's not, no one's going to invest in a 15 year power line. Right? The, the developers that have to put that money down, to, they're not going to do it. They're going to find another alternative or some other option. And that's why our system here in New England, that's why our, our rates skyrocketed about a year ago, because there was just, it was, a, it was a, a crunch. It wasn't just the cost of natural gas coming in. It was a crunch on the infrastructure. So we've been able to manage that a little better. But technology, technology, technology is how you can best make the transition and have the federal government assist. And I think part of the conservative answer is, what can the government do and what should the government not do, right? And, and I think one of the problems that you put your, your pulse on there was a lot of the problems we have when it comes to trying to build clean energy in this country to help bring down emissions and be more environmentally friendly goes up against this federal permitting process where it's actually the government standing in the way of reaching our goals, which I think is just a, a, a lovely irony because all those regulations are put there in the first place by environmentalists and they don't want those taken out. That's right. Um, but I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, which obviously the ambassadors talked a lot about, which is the idea of energy dominance. Um, and I think we've seen right now with what's happening in Europe, the importance of the United States uh, using our domestic resources, oil and gas, and sending those to our allies and having those at home. That's incredibly important. Uh, but we also see as we go into this future where we're electrifying things, where we're moving towards clean energy, 
that countries like China are building their own form of energy dominance. Mm -hmm. They dominate critical mineral supply chains. They dominate EV battery supply chains, um, wind and solar, and, and all these other different technologies that we're going to need in the future are almost entirely dominated by China. And so to me, and, and I feel like to many young conservatives, energy dominance isn't just fossil fuels. It's an all of the above energy approach where we're actually building those things here at home. We're getting the government out of the way and we're making sure that we're not relying on China for the technologies of the future. Could you talk a little bit about yeah. how the ambassador thinks? So, so um, again, I think Nikki and I share a lot of the same vision here. Uh, the example I'm going to give here is Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma produces a lot of oil. They're also the, one of the number, I think they are the number one producer of renewable energy per capita uh, in the country because they have wind, they have solar. They've made huge, broad advances there. Um, they've, uh, they, both the government has, has subsidized it, allows those technologies to come to fruition, but they have a, a terrific spectrum, uh, more, more than almost any other state. And it's, and it's a very red state. It's a very conservative state, very, very Republican state, but they're doing it the right way. They're saying, yes, we have a lot of oil and, and opportunity here. We have a lot of natural gas and opportunity, but that doesn't mean we're not going to take advantage. We're going to use that energy dominance position, that leverage that we have to take advantage to allow us to make the right investments in a better and, and smarter, more long-term spectrum uh, of, of environmental policies. That can be shared across the country. And again, what's, you know, what's good for Florida, what's good for Oklahoma, might be very different than what's op uh, you know, opportunistic for New Hampshire um, and, and California. So let, again, if the government can help provide some of these opportunities, but let the states decide you know, their, their best path. And as much as we can, take the politics out of this. Um, it has to be based on data. It has to be on functionality. The thing that drove me crazy when I first became governor and uh, I'm, a, I'm big on hydro, and I was trying to get hydro out of Canada. And they said, yeah, the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the dam's too big, uh, if the hydro plant's too big, it's not, it's not renewable anymore. Only small hydro is considered renewable, and you get the, the tax credits and the credits for renewable energy. If it's too big, we don't consider that renewable. So if I was getting renewable energy from a big dam, nope, not, it's not renewable. Does that make any sense? The dumbest thing I ever heard. Just because it's a bigger dam doesn't mean it's less re renewable. It's still the power of the river being turned to electrons to power whatever we need to, to electrify. Um, so again, that's just politics getting in the way of, of good opportunity. So what does that mean? When we had the opportunity to invest in, and connect with dams, it, it made it less economically achievable to do that because they couldn't take advantage of things that small hydro could. Small hydro is great, but it's really ex expensive to maintain because you're, you're basically maintaining um, 12 small dams is much more expensive to upgrade, to maintain, to keep all the, the systems and the parts working and the dams viable and structurally viable and all that than one big dam, right? You could get the same energy out of both, but, ones can, but the small ones are, are renewable and the big ones aren't. That's just an example of just really bad policy. I, I don't know who made that decision, but it was made either by law or, or by rule. But okay, so it forces to only look at small hydro. And a lot of people are getting rid of their small hydro plants. They don't want them. They're, they're too expensive. Towns have them. They're like, eh, we don't want to do this anymore. So they're getting out of the business of it. Um, the state could buy that and, and take it over. And in some cases, that, that we do. Or private individuals own private dams and private waterways, and they sell the power back to the grid. That's great. But now they're, a lot of those folks are saying, well, we just don't want to be in this business anymore. So a lot of those smaller ones are disappearing. Um, so again, it's not necessarily, you don't want the state buying all the power. You don't want the state controlling the energy market. You want the state creating a free energy market. That's what ultimately will drive the prices down and allow us to make bigger investments into better spectrums of, of renewables. Again, allowing each state to, to kind of find their path.
Cool. We're going to go into a few quick questions from the audience. Sure. But before we do that, could I just like get you to, in, in 30 or 60 seconds, uh, just give a quick pitch on what is Nikki Haley's message to young people, including young conservatives, yeah. who care about climate change, care about the environment, they want to do it in a way yeah. that works for the economy. Look, the, the answer to climate change is, is taking, uh, I think, an all-of-the-above approach, being smart, making that transition, investing in those technologies, making sure those things happen. Uh, it's not climate change denial. It's not a climate change extremism. It's allowing that free market to happen as, as best as it possibly can, while the government can assist with research and development and making sure that each of the states, each of the regions, can maximize on the renewable energy resources that best fit their needs, not just a one-size-fits-all out of Washington, D.C. Awesome. You kept that under 60 seconds. There we go. Rest. All right, questions. Uh, Isaiah. It's very encouraging. I'm hearing assertive words about what I meant here after the climate change in the debate. One of the things that was also refreshing to hear was for talking about how tied into the major emitters. Uh, yeah, I was that other greatest guys. What's your plan to get those countries, other countries around the world, also be very civilian selections? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the way I can probably best describe it is making sure that we have economic leverage over those countries allows us to make demands of them. So it could be a demand, um, just to go off topic a little bit, it could be a demand that they go after their fentanyl, the factories that are making the raw materials for fentanyl and drugs, shipping to Mexico and coming in here. It could be a demand that they're going to, you know, instead of building a hundred, I think they did like a hundred coal plants two years ago, China built a hundred coal plants in a year, two a week, they were putting online, right? Enough, enough. If we have to play by, by international, some, some of these international rules of, of clean climate, so, so do they. Um, you know, there's other demands we can make on them. I mean, I, I go a little far afield, but it, it ties into the climate and the environmental health of individuals. When you're looking at the mines that, and how they do mining, the child labor, the humanitarian crisis and the, it, that all ties into the environmental crisis, um, cleaning up their hazardous waste. I mean, we have our Superfund programs and we have hazardous waste sites. We all know that. But, you know, we know how to identify them. We go after They ignore it, completely ignore it. So um, if we're all going to play on this international stage of taking climate change seriously, everyone's got to play by the same rules. That's one of the main reasons she pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord, because not everyone, everyone it was the rules were completely pushed against the United States. And not everyone had to live up to those standards, not just China, but India as well. Now, India is an ally of ours, and it's great that India is an ally. But again, we have to have economic leverage to kind of start calling some of these shots on these guys. It all starts with a strong economy here and that allows us to negotiate better deals, um, whether it's trade deals or whatever it is, and then insert the environmental piece that, that can go in it. If we're weak in, in militarily, if we're weak economically, then we have no leverage they're going to say, oh, you want us to shut our coal plants down? Okay, thanks. Thanks for the tip. Go screw. And they're going to move on. And that's kind of how we've been treated um, for, for a lot of years. But the, the ability to turn that around, it has this whole domino effect of positive repercussions. As moderators, my right to editorialize slightly. I'm just going to add also, I think that's where the energy dominance angles comes in. Because if we're building the best and cleanest technology in the world here in the United States, we can export that to countries like China and India, and I'd much, much rather them buying our products than us buying their products. Look, let's talk about oil really quick. When we drill for oil in America, we do it cleaner and it's more soundly than anywhere else in the world. The fact that when Biden goes and tells these countries in the Middle East, we're, we, we're not drilling our oil. We, we want to take your oil. That's the dirtiest oil in the world. That's the most envir unenvironmentally sound oil in the world. Right? So that goes completely against his own philosophy. Um, but again, he's hoping that you don't notice that. 
but we have very stringent regulations. It, I'm not saying I'm not saying you don't you you ignore it. Just the opposite. We put an emphasis on drilling smartly. We put an emphasis, you know, and if you're going to do something, if you're going to do something smart anywhere in the world, do it here in America, right? Where we hold ourselves to a different standard, where we have good, you know, good regulations, both out of the government and self-regulation, you know, locally, because people, if something goes wrong, people are going to stand up and say it. But again, the pushing back on the extremism is so important. It dissolves this conversation. It's so hard to have this conversation in such an important way when all people hear from the mainstream media is the climate extremist. I mean, you heard the guy today, I don't know who that, this kook was saying, look, we're gonna, we, we should be looking at blowing up pipelines. Yeah, some people might get killed. You know, that, that, that might happen. That's okay. I mean, these are the extreme environmental crusaders coming out and they're, and, and they're willing to, you know, cost people lives and all this sort of thing on their crusade. It's not smart. It's not data-driven. And ultimately, that's the, unfortunately, the, the uh, discussion that people are having about climate change and where we need to go as opposed to what I think you guys are doing, which is smart, which is data-driven, which, which allows uh, especially conservatives, and I think smart conservatives, look at data and make those transitions as opposed to having to play political games. Nikki doesn't play political games. Everyone else on that stage you know, was afraid to say anything. But you know, she'll tell you what, what it is and stand by it 100% of the time. You mentioned a lot about hydro. Sure. In my old state, uh, in the West or Harden State, we had three major nuclear centers, and they greatly reduced cost of energy for dwelling because I just wanted to hear your take. Sure. So I'm going to give a little background. So when uh, my father was governor back in the 80s, and he, when he was governor, a Seabrook Power Plant came online. And I remember being, I was like 10 years old, and there were people in my front yard, you know, in nuclear radiation suits, protest. The environmentalists wanted to shut down nuclear. They wanted to shut down nuclear. Um, and now the environmentalists are like, hey, can we get some more nuclear going here? What's going on? So my how things have changed, right? The challenge with nuclear, and I'm a big fan, but here's the challenge. The one nu new nuclear power plant that's being built in this country, it's in Georgia. It's a massive project, massively over budget, right? So for whatever reason, the costs to build these things right now are so huge, folks aren't looking to do that. Small batch nuclear is a huge opportunity. It's got its hurdles. People are going to have, have their tentative, um, you know, be, be afraid of it and all that. It's got to be tested out. But some of the small batch stuff, it's safer, it's smarter. Um, I mean, you can have small batch plants that just power a small town here or a factory there. Um, that's the future of nuclear, I think. America, and again, that's where the government is putting a lot of money into the research and development. I don't think we're going to get there for about 50 years. I mean, I think it's going to take, not, not that we're doing nothing for 50 years, but I don't think you're going to see it really out there at a level where it's, it's becoming a much more significant contributor to the grid than we see today. But it's, got to, it's definitely part of our future, right? Fusion is going up. The amount of fission that we're doing is going down. I mean, we'd all like to see fusion really become a reality. And again, it is. It's getting better. The, the opportunity for that is getting better and better. When I was in high school, I was a real geek. I went to MIT and it was a real geeky thing. But we were, oh, fusion can't happen. It's not going to be real. It's not going to be real. 20 years later, it's very real, right? And 20 years from now, it's going to be even more real. It's going to be safer. It's going to be smarter. It can have, you know, net, net positive output. So, um, that's, I just keep going back to huge opportunities there. Today, the costs are astronomical, but I think as you go to the smaller stuff and with some better technologies 20, 30 years from now, that's a huge opportunity, specifically for New England, I think. Uh, we have only two nuclear power plants left in all of New England, Seabrook and the one in Connecticut. I forget where Stone something, uh, Millstone. They've got rid of Plymouth. They got rid of the Yankee power plant in, um, in uh, 
Vermont, and it was mostly driven on politics. They needed upgrades. Don't get me wrong. They needed upgrades. They needed to be fixed and cleaned up and all that. But you can do that. You don't have to just shut it all down. But they, everyone had it in the mindset, oh, just, just shut it off. And when you're all together in New England and you're at the end of the line for natural gas, and we don't, last time I checked, we don't, no one's found any oil yet underneath. Um, we're really at the mercy uh, of everybody else, but nuclear allows us to do it. The other big piece with nuclear is the waste. I'm a has waste guy. Um, you know, you got to get Yucca Mountain going or some solution there. But right now, every nuclear power plant is its own giant natural uh, nuclear waste repository because that waste has nowhere to go, right? It's just sitting there. Um, that's, not, that's not a smart thing to do. You can move nuclear around on, on train. You can't bring it by road. Um, that's a problem. So how we manage our waste stream is a huge part of how we grow uh, the opportunity. To stay up to date with future episodes, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, really wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, as always, please leave us a review and let us know. Our next episode, which releases tomorrow, will feature Vivek Ramaswamy in our discussion with him. So until then, take care. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.